Do bands still need labels in this day and age? There are some variables based on what kind of band you're in, but overall the answer is yes. All bands need someone to do what a label does. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. On today's show, we're doing a special music industry 101 roundtable about record labels. We'll talk to three label heads about what they do and why it's important to bands, how they sign artists and more. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lick the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to John Shepsky of Fluff and Gravy Records, Aaron Miola of Tender Loving Empire, and Blake Hickman of Good Cheer Records. You guys, welcome to The Future of What. Thanks for having Thanks. us. Thanks, man. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. So as you heard in the intro, we are going to talk about what do labels do and are they still relevant? And I say yes. <laughs> Does anybody disagree? Let's just get this out there right at the beginning. Nobody disagrees. <laughs> no. <laughs> you're probably asking the wrong people. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. This, is, this is the wrong crowd for that. So let's talk about all the things that we do as record labels. First of all, why don't you guys tell us how long... I know, Aaron, you're new to your post. This is... Yeah, I've been at Tender Living Empire now for about four months, so it's pretty fresh, but I ran a small electronic imprint outside of that called Dropping Gems beforehand and had been in the artist management world, and I feel like all that kind of helped lead up to Tender Living Empire. Absolutely. And John, you've been doing Fluff and Gravy for a while. Yeah, this is going to be... In November, this will be five years for us, so we're Excellent. reaching a milestone. Very cool. And good cheer... Our first release was in February of 2015, so awesome. we're still pretty new, yeah, for sure. I love it, and we're in year 25, so awesome. It's possible to stay in this business. I mean, you guys are all in the category of tender living empire. I think what, they've been doing this about 10 years. Uh, going on nine this year. Yeah, exactly. So, so we've been around for a little bit, right? I feel like you know, I always am shocked that people still want to start record labels because it seems like such a, a crazy business. But actually, really, the worst was like 2008. So it's like since then, it's been much better, I think, as an environment. And plus, the trends have changed so much. I mean, you can sell vinyl. You can, you know, if you're doing like, let's say, an electronic label, you can do a lot of digital stuff very successfully. So it's not quite the like bleak marketplace that it was. One thing I've really been coming around to is streaming, too. You know, I mm. kind of didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole for a while. And recently, it's really becoming something that matters. Yeah, absolutely. So... In your years, year of running a label, what have you guys found to be some of the hardest things about running a label? As a startup, finding money is probably the biggest challenge. I would say just like finding resources in general. You know, we've done everything we've done with like literally no distribution. And so it is like a thing where there's a hundred orders on our band camp and we have to pack and ship all those by hand. And so trying to find, you know, more resources. So it's kind of more of a, a manageable thing kind of compartment in our adult lives is kind of our constant goal, I guess. I, th I think really, I mean, the most difficult thing for me is managing expectations that artists have, like, you know, they're going to get signed to a record label and all of a sudden they're going to start selling thousands of records. Right. You, you know, they're, they've just some local band and they need to be on a record label and everything's going to change for them. And that's obviously we all know is not the case. Right. And also the expectation that, you know, it, it takes time to do this right. And when I tell an artist that, you know, I need their finished album with artwork 
four to five months before their release date, they're incredulous. They, they can't believe that that's, they're like, I mean, I, and you know, I mean, they've made this great work of art and they want to get it out to the public and then they have to sit on it for six months. Right. And that's, that's difficult. That is, and that's something that's, you know, it's, it's never not been the case. You know, I think because right. of vinyl turnaround times lately, it seems to have, have gotten longer. But I remember when we made the gossip record, Standing in the Way of Control, we made that record in 2005, April of 2005, and we didn't release it till January of 2006. We made the band sit on it because at, in those days, January was a much better release date. Kill Rockstars had a full slate that year. We didn't want it. We knew it was a great record. We didn't want it to drop into the void and disappear. So we were like, we're waiting on this till January. And they were like, we are in a band. We have no jobs. Like, what do we do? Right. So we paid their rent. We just paid their rent for them for the however many months that was because we we're just like, dudes, sorry, like get a temporary job at the coffee shop to eat or whatever you need to do. <laughs> but like, this is the way that this is going to be successful. It's like we had that plan. And that's, I think, part of what a record label can do for a band. You know, it's you, it's more heads on the same problem, right? Mm-hmm. It's more vision. It's more people getting together and saying, you want to achieve X, let's talk about how we do that, right? And most of the time you have some expertise in that. You have some years under your belt of, of actually releasing records and you know how to do it. So one of the things that record labels can offer to bands is that knowledge, is, is knowledge of the music industry, understanding of how to do a release properly. Now, when you're just getting started, let's say with Good Cheer, how do you sort of approach that? What do you, you know, I mean, obviously something compelled you <laughs> to decide to start a record label. It sounds like a cliche, but it really was something that Mo, who's the the guy I run the label with, we kind of fell into it where there was a band called Mr. Bones that we really loved. And they had a tape that no one really noticed when it came out. And so we just reissued it on cassette and started a label just for that band. After we did that, you know, we were approached by another band and we worked with them. And then we did a project that Mo did last year. It was an EP. And then as we're doing this, you know, it's just one of those things where there's a lot of, I guess, unusual facets of my personality to why it's really the most fun I've ever had is like running this label. And so as it's getting up and running, you know, I can kind of see the, the potential of like, Maybe this is something we can do for a while and see how this goes. I mean, it's gotten to a point where, you know, our first release was like this tape that got some like little local press. And then basically a year later, you know, we had a a record that got reviewed by Pitchfork and it was on NPR and all these places. And so it's been just like a really fun stretch here. So, yeah, basically we just did it because it felt right. It's just one of those things where like if there's an opportunity, there's a lot of times where for both of us, there's been kind of opportunities that have come along that we haven't pursued. And so I guess this time for both of us, we were just both in the right place to just really go for it. And that's what we've done to this point. How did you guys all figure out, like, I think when people start record labels, often there's a lot of trial and error. Like you try something and then it's sort of like, oh, well, that didn't work. Or, oh, hey, that worked. You know, do you, what do you do? Do you, do you call people you know? Do you, you know, how do you find out what the right next step is? Uh, you know, for me, I, it, it really has been a lot of trial and error. I didn't really know a whole lot of people in the business other than bands. I didn't know a lot of people that worked the label side. And it was, it was very similar. Fluff and Gravy was really born to put out one band's record. And it, and it just kind of blew up from there. We're on our 33rd release coming up now. 
but it was really born to just r- release one band's record. And I had no idea what I was doing other than I really loved the music and I was passionate about it. And I was driven to get it out there. And there were plenty of things that we did in the first couple of years that I would never do again. And that didn't make sense. We dumped a lot of money into things that we didn't need to dump money into. Mm-hmm. For instance, at this point, I do all my own press. I don't hire out press anymore. And, and there's a lot of great PR firms out there that, that do terrific work. But for us, you know, I, we were taking out press campaigns for local bands and things like that, just things that just didn't make sense. And right. it was really a lot of trial and error. Yes, absolutely. I would say probably the number one thing that record labels do wrong in the early days is spend too much money. Yeah, and that was absolutely the and case for you us. you can just put yourself right out of business by doing yeah. that. The band that I was in when I was on a record label, we had a record label that did that with us. <laughs> they right. gave us way too much money, which was awesome from my perspective. And, you know, in the long view, I was like, oh, man, probably shouldn't have taken that credit card that he took out for us for $5,000. <laughs> That's crazy. Just so we could go on tour right. with a $5,000 credit card. That's yep. crazy. We, we had, I will say to our credit, we had a band actually ask us to buy them a van <laughs> and we didn't do it. Wise. Um, Smart. Yeah. Very wise. Right. Because then who owns it and then they break up and then they own exactly. it. Exactly. And you guys are out, you know, 40 grand or whatever. Yeah. I think early on, one thing that a lot of labels have is time. And it's easy to use that time reaching out to people and doing stuff. And, you know, in turn, being really passionate about stuff helps engage other people and make them pay attention to what you're doing. And then over time, you get busier with projects, your bands get successful, which is what should happen. But I think early on, passion and time are kind of like the two big things that went into it for Tender Loving Empire and for Dropping Gems. Yeah, yeah. And Tender Loving Empire is in a great position because they also have a retail store and a whole other business. Yeah. So one thing that's really unique about Tender Loving Empire is I say we have like a fifth extremity kind of because most labels have distribution and internet sales and, you know, these kind of more traditional routes to sell music. But we also have three retail stores in Portland, which really help expose our music to a lot of people that might not otherwise find it, both tourists and locals. Yeah, absolutely. And do you guys have, do all your releases go into the stores? Yeah, all of our releases go into the stores as well as other Portland labels releases. Mostly it's uh, Northwest-centric, though. Right. Now, how many releases a year, since you've only been there four months, maybe you don't know the answer to this, but how many releases per year are you guys looking at generally doing? Generally, four to five. This year's a little slower for us, partly because I'm coming in and we're finishing up some other projects, but about four to five. And one thing that's been interesting about Tender Loving Empire coming in here is, you know, all the releases have to be of a certain scale. And, you know, I came into record label work doing stuff on a small scale and kind of a DIY approach, which is awesome. And Tender Loving Empire is able to really provide support to artists in a way that smaller labels sometimes can't. So that's that's been an interesting transition to figuring out, you know, what kind of fits the mold of us being able to help the most. Right. John, how about you guys? What, how many releases do you usually try to do a year? It's about the same. It's it's four to six. You know, I mean, we're a small label. It's it's myself. And then I've got I've got a partner, but he's also got a full time job. And so he he basically runs a lot of the social media and does a lot of photography and some graphic design for us. So it's the day to day operations largely fall on me and I I can't handle more than four to six a year. Definitely. And I want to ask you, too, how many you're thinking of. For this year, we're doing 10 things. I mean, I I would mention the majority of those are just like cassette and digital, where we only did one record this year. So. And what do you think it'll be in the future? Do you have like a projection? Yeah, I think that's probably what we'll do for the next year as well, unless something really crazy happens with some kind of distribution thing. 
Vinyl is just, it takes so much time and is so expensive on the front end that at least from where we're at, wanting to be sustainable and, you know, like you were saying, not go out of business before we get things started. I think, you know, we'll stick to just like the one, maybe two vinyl records and then cassette releases. Because for our audience, that's really something that is a, a really good fit is just doing like the digital cassette thing. Yeah. And cassettes are really cheap to make. So yeah. it's, it's not, that's not a big, huge commitment. We've been doing a lot of that lately too. We're, we yeah. just like reissue stuff that's rad on cassette because it's like, you can make 200 copies. There's a lot awesome. of- Just sell them out. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool options with cassettes now to the point where we were just doing one company. Now we have, you know, three different options basically for doing cassettes that all kind of have their own. Like I was basically just put in touch with this guy that does custom paint jobs on cassettes. Whoa. So like splatter or like even like, you know, a picture of the album art painted on the cassette. Um, So yeah, there's just all these kind of like boutique options that are really cool and still very affordable, unlike doing a full vinyl record. So So that's the second thing that labels can provide to artists is resources, right? You know, that I think is is a huge thing. We can provide money, but we... You know, I said first, the thing we can provide is expertise, knowledge. You know, how do we how do we do this thing? How do we accomplish this task? Second thing we can provide is money and resources. And I liked something that you said, John, about your partner does photography, because that's a huge part of this business that people don't think about at all. Every band that you sign needs band photos. They need art photos. And then if, if things to start to take off, you're going to need different photos you know, it's like, let's say you have three photos up on the website, you know, and those are gone in three months. Right. And then press outlets want exclusive photos. They want new photos. Man, you got to have like, that's a big part of this that people often just completely forget about. And photos are not cheap. No. So, you know, that's something that's another thing. So that's really cool that you guys have that in house. Without making it all about money. I think a big thing that labels do is we're kind of a bank in a lot of ways, you know, artists are coming to us for a loan, you know, that that's kind of a big part of it. And as much as there's a team of people in place, the labels are the ones kind of putting their neck on the line, you know, there's artists and agents and managers. And you know, there's a whole team of people involved in making a record successful, but the label is really the one that is, you know, putting their resources into it to help make it happen. And everyone else is putting in time. And, you know, I think a big thing that labels do and a big focus of mine is, making that commitment to show that there's a belief behind a record that it's going to do well and that helps get other people motivated and that helps get photographers motivated video people motivated and you know just help me make those connections and bring them all into the fold definitely so how has that evolved for you guys in terms of for all of you guys in terms of the connections that you need to make to sort of help your artists so like for example, you have photography in-house, but I have like had to reach out into the community since we moved to Portland and find several photographers that, and now I have some go-to people that I know that they're going to charge me a certain amount, which is the amount I want to pay. They're going to take awesome pictures. They've got great ideas, you know, and I, they're like my go-to people. And that doesn't mean that other people don't work for us. They do. But, you know, that's been like super awesome to have in my back pocket. And then as I've been doing this for 20 years, I know a lot of booking agents, you know, I know, I know a lot of managers, all these these people that I just know. And that's helpful, too, for my bands because, you know, they come to me and half the time they don't have a booking agent. And if they don't have a manager, that's probably good <laughs> in a lot of ways. But, you know, I can hook them up with people as necessary. So how long do you think it takes to sort of develop those kinds of connections? 
I mean, so I've been doing this for you know just about five years, and I'm still developing those connections. We got some great video folks in town that we work with. Obviously, we have our photographer in-house, and we also have a graphic designer in-house. But I'm still making those connections, and, and the most difficult piece to put together is, is booking agents, especially for a lot of bands that are mid-level bands. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you can find a booking agent for a low-level band. You can find a booking agent for a superstar international touring band that's going to pull in 500 people a night. But mm-hmm. for a lot of the mid-level bands that we work with, it's, it's, it's very difficult to find a booking agent. And the sad thing is a lot of our bands are still on their own for that. Right. Yeah. And that's a big piece for the band. Yeah. I think a big part of that, too, is just the consolidation and all the crazy stuff that's happening in the booking world, too. There's so many agencies getting bought up by another, and it's turned into almost like a startup culture sort of thing where, like, a new agency will form, they'll book all these hot acts, and then they'll get swallowed up by a bigger agency. And it's really tough. You know, even some of our really established acts that have, you know, great touring histories, things happen with their old booking agent, and then it's really tough to get a new one. Even, you know, being a mid to higher level act, it's still no given that you're going to have an awesome agent and you really just have to have the right person. And one thing I always say about a booking agent is it doesn't need to be someone you like, it just needs to be someone that's going to like put in the time and really hustle for you and finding the right people's challenging. And I think that's probably the most challenging thing recently for me when working with artists to set up a team, you know, finding a manager, finding people to do, you know, visual and, you know, audio work on a record is one thing, but finding a booking agent is really tough. And mm-hmm. that's how artists are going to make a lot of their money. Definitely. Definitely. And sometimes you can gauge how well an artist is going to do by how easy it is to get them a booking agent. <laughs> it's true. Because that true. just happened with me with Summer Cannibals. I got them a booking agent like from a cold email, which hasn't happened in like eight years. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh. but I mean, the, they're a great band and they're great right. lives. So it's like, it made sense, but I was still just blown away. I was like, wow. That's really hard to imagine happening, but I'm so happy. (laughs) That being said, one thing about labels with booking agents is, you know, it's one thing for a band to hit up an agent cold, which, you know, you're probably not going to get a response. And even as a label, we don't always get a response doing that. But again, by a label showing that, hey, we're investing in this. Can you invest in this with us? And on a time side of things, you know, that can lend a lot to the conversation. Absolutely. I belong to a cynical savior. My belly has been fed too much of his babe. I may have lost all of my reason. So I, so I could love the way, the way that I can. So I, so I. was Ostrich by Ila Bamba. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. 
To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to John Shepsky of Fluff and Gravy Records, Aaron Miola of Tender Loving Empire, and Blake Hickman of Good Cheer Records. I think that's a really good segue into what I always tell bands, like when I get, you know, demo emails. I like to, at this point, send a little response back to to bands so they don't just feel like they put it out into the void. But what I, I tend to say to them is, you know, if you've written 10 songs and you're sitting home and you've got your 10 songs on Bandcamp or whatever, and that's all you're doing, and you're putting those out there for me to listen to or for someone else to listen to, my opinion doesn't matter. It really doesn't. You know, ultimately, what matters is your opinion. If you love your your band, you know, that's that's the opinion that matters. But what you need to be doing is you need to be driving a train because if the train is driving, you're going to find that people want to get on board, you know, and that's how this actually works is that you're already out there. You're playing live shows. You're awesome. You're playing with cool other bands. They're telling people about you. You're making tons of fans and you're like looking like you're going to do this by yourself. And then that's when the people who are like at labels and management and people like that are like, hey, wait, wait, hold on. I want to I want to get a piece of this train. (laughs) Would you guys agree that that's sort of how it's been? Very much so. Because I find that that's a tough thing for for bands. You know, it's like they really want the label to be some sort of door that if they can open it and pass through, then they're, they're done working. Right. You know, and I keep trying to make it clear, like, no, it's the beginning of working. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a big cosign. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a big deal to get a label to commit our resources. Like you said, you know, we're the risk takers of the music industry. We're saying, here's our money. Thunk. Please, you know, use it wisely and don't break up. Yeah. I mean, almost I feel like where we're at now, it's like uh, we're a gatekeeper of sorts. But then once we get through the gate, there's like 20 other gates. Exactly. And we both like, you know, I don't know what to do either, but let's just see what works. I don't know. That's at least where we're at in the curve. And to our end, you know, we're like a, a DIY scene label at this point. So we haven't had any success with booking agents. There's only been a couple acts that we've even tried with just because Mo, who I run the label with, you know, he's been booking punk shows in Portland since he was 15 years old. And he has this massive you know, list of contacts all throughout the country of people who will book DIY shows in cafes and bookshops and houses and kind of that tier of touring to where, you know, he booked his first U.S. tour that's happening this fall just on, you know, entirely like DIY scale. So we're not to the booking agent level yet. I think we will be with a a few of our acts, hopefully, eventually, but we can provide, you know, all these like to where we can help a band, you know, put together a 20-day West Coast tour that they can make money on and sell product to. And, you know, that's something that we definitely notice. Even though it's not a, you know, a a booking agent booking the tour, you know, I can still point to, oh, you know, we're selling tapes in, you know, these places that I know our bands have been to, so, that we weren't before. So. And that's critical, too, because you're providing them with a really helpful resource in doing that. I mean, I did that with my first bands in management. I mean, I booked the first three tours, one of the bands that I worked with, you know, and I was nobody. I was just, a, you know, I was like a person who had had been in a band that was on a label and had toured. And that's right. it. And just using that as my experience, I was helping these other bands try to get somewhere. And the thing is, it doesn't matter who books your tour, honestly. It really matters that you go on a tour yeah. and that you go back. <laughs> right. Because that is how you build a following in a market, you know, and and I think that that's 
that's a critical piece that that bands really need to understand. You got to do the work. You right. got to put in the work. And people like us are not necessarily that interested. I mean, people like us are are sadly two faced though because we also really love music. So sometimes you fall in love and you're like, oh, I'm totally going to do this, even though like all the warning signs are there that I should really not do this. And this is a really bad idea. You just do it anyway because you're like, I love that record so much, or like I really want to help this band. Then they break up and don't go on tour, or, you know, whatever. Or you buy them a van and they break up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we do sometimes love too much. But on the other hand, we also have, I think, eventually a, f- a fiduciary responsibility to the label to be like, I really can't, I can't just be, I can't just be doing that. Like I got to actually yeah. take a chance on a band that's, that's already on its way. That's, mi- that's going to put in the hard work. Yeah, we call it the velvet hammer at Tender Living Empire. You know, Ooh. we don't want to crack the whip too hard, but kind of what you were saying earlier in terms of managing expectations, I think a lot of this falls into that. And I think overall, that's the biggest thing as a label head that I do and probably a lot of us do is manage expectations and, you know, keep people on the track of focusing on what they need to focus on so everything else can kind of fall into place. And I think a big thing we do as labels too is kind of try to take things off the artist's plate so they can focus on the music because ultimately that's what hopefully they're best at. And, you know, most of the artists I work with are trying to, you know, do these little things to help their careers, which is great. But ultimately, if they're in the studio writing music and on tour, that's how they're going to be the most successful. So us being able to help out with all the other little things and connect the dots is, I think, a big part of our role. I think that's a really great way to put it. Thanks for saying that because that's what I was talking about with that Digital Music News article. There's so many parts to what we do to to putting out a successful release. Do you really want artists to be the person whose job it is to do all that stuff? Like that's the bottom line. When I read that article, I was like, and in your spare time, write and record some music. Like what? It was no, it was a complete full-time job. This right. it was just like 300 things that you need to do. I mean, even from like writing a decent bio. Yeah. Not everyone's great at writing. You know, not everyone can really figure out how to do that. For years, we would hire people at Kill Rockstars based on the band, like somebody cool that they knew or somebody that loved, you know, we knew was a fan to write the bio. And it wouldn't cost a whole lot of money, but it was super cool to have like a well-written bio by someone who was a genuine fan of the band. Nowadays, I'm like, ah, whatever. <laughs> I'll just write it myself. Sometimes. And I, and I can't imagine doing all that stuff, particularly when you're a band that's a touring band, that you're on the road for two or three months at a time. You know, you're either driving or you're in a place where, you know, you're in the middle of Wyoming and there's no internet reception and everything is so, I mean, th- people are so connected now and to lose connection or have spotty connection for two or three months at a time. I I mean, I know that from when, when my bands go on the road and I try to communicate with them. Mm-hmm. And it may take days for them to get back to me sometimes. I'm like, I, I can't imagine how you would be on the road and doing all the things you need to do to keep your band in the media, in the press, to set up radio shows, to set up interviews. I, I don't know how you would do that. Exactly. And what I meant by when I said in the beginning of this that there's some variables based on what kind of band you're in for whether bands need a label or not. What we've seen in recent years, which I think has clouded the picture a lot, is artists that are already established with a fan base that they built while on a label of some sort, either a major or a big indie, coming back to the marketplace and then making a successful bid with a new record or something using, you know, tapping into those already there fans that they had already right. gotten. And so that is one, that's one way to do it without a label. But even those bands, I would I would guess in every case they have a manager, they probably have someone on their team whose job it is to do all the social media, do all the 
you know, all of the pieces, you know, the business part, because unfortunately, at the end of the day, this is really a business. And, you know, if you don't have someone, like you said, at home in the office answering the phone, right. you know, while you're on tour, then that's just piece isn't going to get done. And it's the world doesn't wait. The world isn't like, oh, well, I'll just wait for them to call me back five <laughs> days from now when they get an internet connection. Right. No, that's not how it works, you know, and opportunities come and go so quickly. You got to be there. What are you saying? What you saying to me? What do you want me to believe? Everything you said turned out wrong. Busted and broken, all dead and gone. There's no light coming up over the ring. When a stone Save Me by Fernando. You're listening to The Future of What. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. We're talking to John Shepsky of Fluff and Gravy Records, Aaron Miola of Tender Loving Empire, and Blake Hickman of Good Cheer Records. So another thing I want to ask you guys about, especially, you know, starting out. So one thing for labels is, you know, you're like, I love this band. I'm going to put this band out. And you put out the record. And then you do that for a little while. And then you're like, Everybody should know about this band, not just my local, you know, people in my town. So the next step is trying to get national distribution, right? So how do we do that? How do we get national distribution? I was hoping someone would tell me how to do that <laughs> here today because I, I don't know. Have you guys tried? Y yeah, we have. I've sent a lot of feelers out and I know I'm talking to the right people because I, like, I work at a record store. And so I know that, you know this is actually this person's email address. I've tried to be creative about it. I mean, we haven't had anything take yet. I think it's just because we're so still very young and they, I assume, don't want to take a chance when we have only been around for a year and a half or whatever. So yeah, no, we have not had any luck with that. We've had a lot more luck with like national press than national distribution, so. And I think distro is probably one of those pieces that has also changed with the times, you know, since the big crash of the music industry. I think distribution companies are probably also very wary and they're like, oh, my gosh, we have to, like, conserve our resources. We can't just pull every cool label that we see 
into the fold because what if, I mean, we were with Touch and Go in 2009 when they went out of business. And that's exactly like the worst case scenario of being a distributor because you're beholden to both the record stores and the labels. So it's it's like a lot of a lot of people need a piece of, of your action when you're a distributor. How about you, John? It took us a couple of years. We work with Burnside now. And then the nice thing about Burnside is they're local, so I don't have to pay to ship my records to them. And 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 also they're passionate about us and what we're doing. And they may not be the most powerful distribution company in the States, but they're passionate about us and that and that goes a long way rather than being part of some other distribution group where, you know, we're 1500 miles away from them and we've never had face-to-face contact and they don't know who we are and we're at the bottom rung, you know? So that's worked out well for us. It took us really a couple of years before we started to work with them. And lately we've been partnering with a record label in the UK, which has really done a lot for us over the past year or so. We've partnered with them for, for three different records for basically our, well, three of our last four releases. And that's done a lot because now we're running two separate press campaigns almost. They're running the one in Europe and we're running one here and they're really connected in, in putting tours together for these bands in Europe, which generates, generates more press and helps us out. So I was really reluctant for the first four years of our existence to do that sort of thing, to, to give up, to, to give up part of my control because, you know, we sign worldwide distribution contracts and to, to sign part of that over to somebody who I don't know, but that's worked really well for us over the last year. Who And they have distribution, I'm assuming, European distribution. Yeah. Who is that with? It's a, a record company called Decor Records. Uh-huh. They work with Richard Fontaine. They do Mark Eitzel's stuff out there, Richard Buckner. Cool. Um, so, it, you know, it, to, have, to have somebody that, you know, that comes in with that kind of a pedigree yeah. and is willing to work with our records has been really good. Very cool. So Tender Loving Empire works with ADA, which was a relationship that's been established, I want to say, about four years ago. But they're absolutely incredible. I actually just a week or two ago was down there and I met with them in person for the first time. But it's a little bit different from what you guys are talking about. But ADA is a subset of Warner and they have an incredible team of people that really work releases. And it's kind of incredible to see the machine and what they bring to the table with that. You know, there's people that specialize in just the relationships with iTunes and Spotify and people that specialize in back catalog and getting sales up for that stuff. And, you know, they, they really bring a lot to the table. That being said, it's not the easiest thing as a small label to get into a spot like that. And, you know, I think it took a hit record to make that a viable thing. And for in our case, it was Typhoon. But I think one thing as a DIY or smaller label that some of these, you know, mid-tier to higher tier distro spots look for is a plan. And when you don't have an uh, extreme amount of funding and when, you know, you don't know what your next artist is going to be, it's hard to be planning out. And one thing I think a lot of distributors look for is, you know, a six month to, you know, if not four year plan of like, what do you have coming up? Because ultimately they need to be able to relay that on to their partners and all the people that are going to be working for you on their team. So that's, uh, I think, one big thing that they're looking for at a larger distribution spot. Definitely. I think you're right. I think that's true. And I think that because of the limited number of distribution options in America that people can be pickier, you know, they're they're pretty careful and, and they choose carefully. But that said, you know, if it's just like being in a band. If you start to make enough noise, everyone's going to be like, hey, I'd love to take, you know, 15% of that money that you guys are printing over there like you did with Typhoon. Yeah. And I mean, that being said too, them taking a cut in the long run as a small label, that might sound difficult, but it's really worth it because even as an artist, you have all these people taking a cut, whether it's an agent or a manager or a label. And in this case, distribution, you know, having these people on your team is only going to grow the pot. So it's 
very much in everyone's interest to get them involved. And, you know, I love Bandcamp, you know, on the flip side of all this kind of more larger picture distribution stuff, you know, there's all these resources out there now that a band can do on their own or a small DIY label can do on their own and be really successful, you know, especially with smaller formats like cassette and whatnot. There's a ceiling for it, but it's a relatively high ceiling once you kind of get going on it. And there's people going to these alternative distribution spots, specifically seeking those formats out that will buy a release without even listening to it just because it's available. Yeah. You know, we just started the Bandcamp subscription thing and it's been great. Like, it's great to have just like these people that say like, you know, I'm a supporter of this label. You know, we have two tiers. One is like digital. One is someone that will get, you know, all of our tapes, which ends up being like once a month. And yeah, it's awesome because we know like, you know, this is like revenue that like we can count on and project to have. So yeah, Bandcamp has been great to us for sure. I am tired of like packing (laughs) orders and standing at the post office. But yeah, I mean, it's been great. So you're still doing your own packing and shipping. Yeah. Do you guys have a department for that? No, I still do packing and shipping. Luckily, I've got a 11 year old and an eight year old at home, and that's (laughs) that's our packing and shipping department. (laughs) See, my my son is five, so that's it's it's too early for him yet. It's fun to stick things on envelopes for kids. Yeah, (laughs) totally true. And plus, then people love it when they get the envelope because they're like, "What? It's all wonky and cool." We had our our eight year old for a while when we were shipping vinyl. She eventually got tired of it, but in the the cardboard that you would pack in with the record she would draw a custom piece of art on each piece of cardboard so she would spend like every week she would draw like 30 or 40 of those things Whoa. And she, she finally got tired of it yeah that's pretty cool for those people <laughs> gosh and what about TLE you guys have a packing department we do a lot of our stuff is getting put through ADA at this point and AEC which is a one stop but we also take orders on our website and ship stuff out every day and we have an operations person and interns in the office who help out with that so do you guys have a warehouse Oh, no, we have an office that we're outgrowing right now. But we have most of our inventory in a stock room at our office. Yeah, because we had that for years and years and years. It was only just the last four years, I think, that I finally outsourced to another company in Kansas that does all of our mail order stuff. But ultimately, it made my life a lot easier because, you know, we we're paying for a warehouse, insurance for the warehouse, you know, salaries for the people, phone, fax, (laughs) whatever internet, you know, all of those costs. And now they just take a set amount, you know, boom, percentage, and and we just get checks in the mail. I like that better at this point. Yeah. My two cents about warehousing. Although I think, you know, it's it's a scale thing. Like, you know, you can still do it. And then maybe you can get an intern pretty soon. We we have an intern, actually. (laughs) She's great. Yeah. Speaking of bios, you know, we have, she's written just some of our latest ones and they're really good. That's something that we've been, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback is just how good our bios are. They're very long though, but I think that it almost works to our our advantage because they're used to seeing like the three to five sentence thing. And so when they get something longer, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, we do have an intern, but uh, maybe we'll get more interns. I don't know. Cool. All right. So I'm interested, Aaron, since you just basically stepped into this role, what have you been finding in terms of, you know, basically, I'm sure you just get like tons of demos at this point. And like, 
So how are you doing your discovery? And are you even at that point yet? Or are you not prepared to like start signing things? We're prepared to start signing things. You know, I have a couple key kind of things that we're looking for over the next really, you know, at this point, I'm looking into later 2017 at this point. And we have a band too. We're in the process of getting ready to release some stuff for early next year that I'm excited about and also focus on some records right now. But in terms of signing new stuff, you know, one thing I do that's actually interesting, speaking of Bandcamp, is I'll go on Bandcamp and see what's selling in a specific city, especially if there's a city that, you know, it's like, hey, we want to sign a band from this city for a specific reason. You know, I'll see what's selling. And that's like an awesome thing about Bandcamp is you can go on there and do that. You know, a big part of it too is just like reading local publications, you know, obviously local publications here in Portland, like the Willamette Week and the Mercury, but I'll read, you know, The Stranger up in Seattle and, you know, alternative papers in different cities and read reviews of albums that are coming out. And a lot of it too is just peer referenced. You know, I ask people what they're listening to and, you know, what's hot right now and what's trending. That being said, I like to find stuff before it's trending, but, you know, a big part of it is just always having an open ear. Just yesterday, actually, we put out an annual compilation and we had about 160 submissions. So uh, me and four other staff members literally spent a 10 hour day yesterday just listening to tracks curating that which was awesome but i, I actually had all of our bands send stuff to that <laughs> yeah, we haven't emailed so. people back yet but one of them's gonna be on it <laughs> sweet oh, sweet that's very cool john you know i we yeah I, we get probably three or four submissions a week and we're not we're we're a small label and honestly and i feel awful saying this i do not have time to listen to four submissions a week and Almost everybody gets a stock response back from me saying, you know, look, I really appreciate this, but these are our resources. I've got my releases for the next two years essentially already planned out right now. Right. Not to say that if something really incredible came our way, but essentially the only time that I look at something now is if it's a band that I'm already familiar with that has submitted something to me. Early on, almost all of our releases, like almost all of our releases were put out from bands that had just cold cold mailed us because we were really developed just to promote one band and then other bands would start to send me things i'm like yeah this is cool i'll put this out i'll put this out and and it was great and i made a lot of great connections that way but really over the past couple of years i can't think of any band that has just sent me something that i've put out and it's unfortunate but i've gone looking for just about everything that we've done the past couple of years. Right. So you actually do the searching, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, I think that's how everybody really, yeah. really does it. Is is And also, you know, like you said, people bring stuff to you, people you trust already, bands that you already right. work with and people that you know are like, oh, you got to hear this band. This band is so cool. I mean, that's, I think, how most people actually do their signing. You know, I think we've signed four bands from demos in 25 years, you know, and you know, one of them was Marnie Stern. So like, she was just like this undeniable talent, but she really did almost, and she did tour a lot and she did make records, you mm-hmm. know, but she was, you know, she was touch and go. We kind of had to like help her every step of the way, find a band and find a, you know, this is how you tour. This is how you walk out your front door, you know, and now she's got this cool gig, you know, as part of the 8G band on the Seth Meyers show, which is fantastic for her. But, you know, it's, that was a real risk to to go. I mean, we just literally, that was one of those things where love, triumphed over commerce <laughs> because right. we didn't know for sure if that was going to work or not. Yeah. I mean, for, for us with Discovery, you know, we're very committed to being like a Northwest DIY scene label. And so all the bands we discover are bands that are playing with our bands or bands that are new bands made up of members from bands that have played with our bands. And so despite that, you know, it says on all of our social media, like, you know, proud to document the Northwest DIY scene. 
we get a ton of blind submissions, you know, especially the week that the Pitchfork review for Mo's record ran. It's like we got so many and so many ones that it was just like, we're a dance pop group from Australia. Please put out our words. Just like, just please just look at our Twitter. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's very clear what we're trying to do. We've been getting less lately, which is nice. But yeah, I mean, for us, it's, it's you know, who is playing shows and DIY spots in Portland that, you know, we have a lot of fundamentals that we look at where we want, you know, really good songwriting, you know, particular like, like our bands are, you know, the with the pop punk thing, like our bands are punk bands that play pop songs, basically. So it's not like hot topic pop punk, but it's like punk bands that have, you know, really good fundamental songwriting. And that's been our main kind of hallmark just of all of our releases is that all of our bands have really good songwriters. And so those are the things that we look at.
was Crossfade by Naked Hour. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to John Shepsky of Fluff and Gravy Records, Aaron Miola of Tender Loving Empire, and Blake Hickman of Good Cheer Records. Okay, so I have one businessy question here. How did you guys figure out what kind of a contract you wanted to give your artists? Or do you not work with a contract? Tender Loving Empire works with contracts, but that being said, each one's a little bit different. We usually kind of have a starting template and we'll start with a term sheet that just kind of lays out kind of the basics of what everyone's trying to accomplish and then that will turn into a contract. But each situation's a little bit different, so there isn't like a totally standard thing. That being said, we have a contract from a lawyer that we edit for each one to fit the situation. That's pretty similar to what we do. We we work with um, a local lawyer here in town and He's been with us from the beginning and he drafted our first contract. And I pretty much just send that template to every band that I'm trying to work with. And it gets kind of finessed a little bit for each band. But for the most part, part it's pretty standard. I don't like doing one-off records because I don't see that. And that's not really very common in this day and age. Like I I, I need at least two records because I don't... in my mind, I'm not putting out a record. I'm supporting a band. Mm-hmm. And the work that I do for this record is going to is going to snowball into the next record, hopefully. And so a lot of bands are reluctant to do that at first because they're not used to seeing multi multi-record contracts anymore. But I, I don't I there's only been one band recently that we signed without a multi-record contract and and, and they're they're a super established band already. So yeah, so we so we do have a standard contract that we work with. We, we've done everything on handshakes to this point with the aim of, with most of the bands that we've worked with, we've either ended up doing their second thing or we're talking about plans of, you know, doing their second thing. I will say there's a, there's a tape that we're doing in August that I think has a lot of potential to really explode. And so now we're looking at like, you know, maybe we actually need to kind of like have a contract for this one. But yeah, outside of that, it's been entirely on handshakes for us to this point. We did handshakes for years and years and years, and then that can really come back and bite you in the butt if you end up being around for 25 years like we have. <laughs> so yeah, have a long view about your, about your label listeners who are starting labels. I think contracts, in my opinion, contracts are great because let's say you're, you have a 15-year relationship with a band or more, nobody remembers what you said you were going to do 15 years ago. It's just impossible. But if you have it written down, you're like, look, we said this. And then it's easy. You're like, oh, yeah, we all, we all agreed to that. So that's my little speech on that. So are there any other functions that you guys have that uh, you provide for your artists besides the label services? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that re- that has really kept us going, especially early on when the, the label was just losing a lot of money, I've got a recording studio. I We were able to basically offer the service of recording the record versus paying another studio to record it. And, and also it's a public studio that's open to the public. So when, you know, if it's a slow time for the label, I'm making a little bit of money, at least on the side by uh, having clients come in and and record albums. That's, that's been a huge part to what we're doing. And also, you know, one other thing that's really kind of kept us going is merch other than records. Uh, We don't, we don't do a 360 contract with bands, but We've got, you know, patches and hats and T-shirts and bags and all kinds of stuff. And honestly, right now, this hat that I'm wearing is our biggest selling item right now. Like it's, it's, <laughs> and, it, and it really does help to be, help us to reinvest that money into music. Absolutely. So, so yeah, I, I think it's super important. And, and I know, I mean, that's part, part of 
yeah. how Tender Love and Empire keeps going is they, they've got their store and they sell all kinds of great stuff. And Yeah. Yeah. At Tender Loving Empire, we have Silkscreen Studio. Um, we have, you know, designers that work in-house and we're able to, we don't do 360 contracts either, but in the contracts, there's a thing about being able to produce t-shirts and other merch items if the artist wants to do that. And we're able to do that in-house, which is pretty awesome. And another thing that we do or that I do that it's not always what, you know, our goal as a label to do is, but, you know, to an extent we can help when there isn't a management team or an agent in place, we can help negotiate certain shows or help out with some management related things when an artist is going overseas to, you know, help get a visa or something like that. And, you know, ultimately, I think it's better if there's people in roles to specifically be focusing on that stuff. But when there aren't, for the success of the project and the artists, we're able to help fill some of those gaps. That's a really good point. I I really think that those models are genius. I think that's the way it should be, uh, especially these days, because there has to be capital coming in from somewhere in order to continue to actually put out releases. And if you don't have you know a 25-year-long catalog, you got to get that money from somewhere. It's like It makes a lot of sense. And I always say to people in interviews, you know, the reason that majors are different from indies ultimately is because majors also have movie studios and hardware companies. You know, Sony is a hardware company. It's not a it's not a music business. You know, and all we sell is these little crummy MP3s, you know, and when when that's your only business, you're on you're on a very different footing from these other corporations that can crush us with a thought. And on that note, <laughs> did anyone have anything else they want to say or ask or advice they want to give for people starting labels or bands trying to get on a label? I think early on, one big lesson I learned is just to be clear and concise because like a lot of the people you're going to email and hit up about stuff are getting, you know, 50 other things very similar to yours. So being really direct and being able to put yourself in the shoes of the people you're emailing, I think is really important, which is kind of a given, but I think it took me, you know, several months, if not a year or two early on to kind of realize that whether it's press or, you know, hitting up people for distribution or whatever it is, you just want to sound confident in what you're doing. Cool. I mean, I would say for us, probably the thing I'm like most proud about with our label is just like how diverse our roster is in terms of, you know, we've put out a lot of records from bands that have women in them and bands that have LGBT members. And yeah, you know, I just feel like if you're running a label in 2016 and you're only putting out records by like white, straight CIS dudes, you're doing something wrong. So <laughs> I, so yeah, I would just say like, uh, that's probably the thing I'm most proud of about our label and the thing that like I would encourage other labels to to do is to just make an effort to be inclusive. Rad. I, you know, I mean, I think really it's all about, or at least what's worked for us coming into this, we didn't really have the relationships, but one thing that we had is a genuine love for what we're doing. Speaking for myself and my partner, Chad, and, and our artists, I think being genuine goes a long way and it and it shows when it shows in your art it shows in how you present yourself to publicists and journalists and things like that so i th- i think that's really what ties everyone on our roster together we kind of we kind of get pegged as an americana label which is something that i i cringe at but it's a it's a category and a term that people think that they understand and that's what they call us and sure i mean we do a lot of indie folk stuff we do a lot of root stuff, but we also do, you know, we also have garage rock and we have indie rock stuff on our label. And, and really what to me ties it all together is just these people are genuine organic songwriters. And that's, I think what has really carried us this far is, is 
just having it all on the table and being honest and straight about everything. Excellent. Final words. So Aaron, John, and Blake, thank you guys so much for being with us on The Future of What. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Ila Bamba, Fernando, Naked Hour, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on this topic that we spoke about today, pick up Vortex Magazine or find them online at vrtxmag.com. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week.